Amen, amen, amen. I want you to turn your Bibles with me tonight to Matthew chapter 8. I want to expand on some things that I was talking about this morning. How many of you here this, were here this morning for the service? Number, uh, over half, okay. Uh, if you weren't here, I would encourage you to get the, uh, uh, the tape or download the MP3s or podcasts or however you listen to stuff. Uh, I believe it will add to some things that we're going to say tonight. We'll start in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 5. It says, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching. Now, uh, a centurion is a Roman officer that's in charge of a hundred different soldiers. So he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He's outside the covenant of blessings of Abraham. And he said, Lord, my servant lies at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goes. And I say to another man, come, and he comes. And do I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west, talking about the Gentile world, Many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Those are the forefathers. Abraham's the father of faith. Isaac's claim to fame is his willingness to believe God as well. The same thing's true for Jacob or Israel as his name was changed. Many shall sit down from the east and the west with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom, and he's talking about the Jews. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, I want you to notice he's already believed, as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And a servant was healed in that selfsame hour. Now, there's, uh, there's something about this that the Lord has really drawn my attention to in recent times. And I read this for, for years and, and didn't see this aspect of it. I used to magnify the faith of the centurion. I, and that was the only thing that I did see out of this story. I saw that Jesus said, wow, look at the great faith of this guy. And, of course, we want to emulate anybody that has great faith. We recognize that the, the foundation for his faith was twofold. First of all, he understood authority. He defines his definition or he defines his understanding of authority as exercised through words or commands. He said, I know how it works. All you need to do, Jesus, is speak the word because I understand you have authority over sickness and disease. So he must have heard the, of the fame of Jesus and the miracles that he had done up to this point. He said, just like you have authority over sickness and disease, I have authority over my, those servants that are in my house and over soldiers that are in my charge. And I know all I have to do is say the word and they obey what I say. So just speak the word only. So it was his understanding of authority, first and foremost, that made his faith great. And I guess an offshoot of that is that he understood that it was the word, the spoken word, that was the key to having what he desired, which was deliverance and healing for his servant. Jesus says, I've not found this kind of faith in Israel. Now, why would he say that? Why would Jesus identify this man's faith in contrast with the faith of the Israelites the descendants of Abraham that he had had contact with up to that point in time in his earthly ministry. 
I believe. You judge this for yourself. But I believe Jesus is saying this guy has the kind of faith that Israel ought to have. This guy is showing the kind of faith as a Gentile. Outside the covenant blessings of Abraham. This guy is showing the kind of faith that I should have been able to find in Israel. Now how is Israel, the Jews, how are the descendants of Abraham supposed to have this kind of faith? Jesus implies, it at the very least he implies that this should be the kind of faith or the style of faith that he found when he came to the earth. I believe he's lamenting, at least partially, lamenting the fact that he hadn't found that kind of faith in Israel. Well, let's fast forward a little bit to after the resurrection during the church age when Paul writes his letters to the church. He writes to the Galatians, a Gentile church, Gentiles making up the church of the Lord, the body of Christ. He writes to the Gentiles and he says to them, who has bewitched you that you should go back into Judaism? Who has fooled you to make you think that Judaism is going to add something to you? Who's responsible for that? Well, he knows the answer. And the book of Acts gives us some information about it. And that is, we know that after the first time Paul went to Galatia on his first missionary journey, every time he went to a town, the cities of Lystra and Derby and Iconia and Antioch and so forth, Every time he went to one of these towns, he'd stay there for a period of time and he'd preach the truth of Jesus and and the sacrifice that he made on the cross and the shedding of his blood and so forth. And then the Jews would get stirred up by the devil. The devil would raise persecution against the Jews. In one case, it tells about the devout women that brought about their influence on their husbands to stir up trouble against Paul and his ministry and run them out of town. So much so that when they came to a certain place, they stoned Paul and left him for dead. They thought he was dead, but the Lord raised him up. So he was either stoned to the point of death or he was stoned to, uh, into death, unto death, and the Lord raised him up. Which one of those is true, I don't know. I don't know that you can prove it one way or the other. But after he was raised up, He spent a couple of days where he was recovering and then he went back to the town where the people came from that stoned him and continued to preach. Now Paul said something to the Galatians when he wrote to them. He said, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should obey the law or go back to trying to obey the law of the Jews? He said, He that ministers the Spirit unto you and doeth miracles among you, how does he do them? Does he do them by the works of the law? Or is he doing by the hearing of faith? And then he answers his own question. He said, even as by the faith of Abraham. Well, if it's a Gentile church, they're not going to know anything about Abraham unless Paul preached to him. Which he must have. He must have preached to him about Abraham. He didn't have to explain in the letter who Abraham was or anything about him. So he must have preached about Abraham. Identifying the faith of Abraham as the example for us to follow. But when he writes to the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, most Bible scholars accept the reality or accept as fact, I'll say it that way, accept as fact that the reason Paul didn't identify himself as the author of the book of Hebrews is because he attached it to the Galatian letter. 
That must be true because at the end of the book of Galatians, Paul says to them, you see what a large letter I wrote to you. Well, six chapters isn't a very large letter, is it? That's how many chapters are in the epistle of the Galatians. But if you combine it with the Hebrew letter, the letter to the Hebrews, it's the longest thing that Paul ever wrote. So if it's not the book of Hebrews that was attached to the letter to the Galatians, we don't know what it would have been. But if it was attached to the letter to the Galatians, which it seems in my thinking to be, Paul is addressing the very ones that stirred up trouble for the Gentile church, the very ones that stirred up persecution against him when he was in that region and tried to tear up the church at Galatia, the Gentile church at Galatia, by trying to impose upon them the law of Moses. Now, when Paul writes to the Hebrews, he didn't have to tell them anything about Abraham's faith. They know about it. He didn't have to explain anything about how Abraham believed God, was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and believed according to the promise. He didn't have to tell them any of that kind of stuff because they already knew it. The ones Paul did tell about the example to the uh, example of faith of Abraham and so forth was to the Romans, a place he had never been, a town he had never preached in. The Roman church were his spiritual grandchildren. They were people. They were the product of people like Apollos. I'm sorry, people like Aquila and Priscilla, who took Paul's message, Paul as their spiritual father, and went to Rome and started churches in different houses. So when Paul writes to the Romans, he's never been there. He says he wants to come. He's wanted to come several times, but the devil has hindered him. But he's planning to come to them. And so as a part of his message, he doesn't know what Aquila and Priscilla or any of the rest of them have taught. So he tells them about the faith of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. He must assume that they don't know. If they do know, then he's certainly willing to remind them of what they've been taught. My point is very simply this. Jews all around the world knew who Abraham was. And they knew the example of faith that Abraham had and showed. Now, what was the example of faith of Abraham? He got to the point. He didn't start off there, but he got to the point where he said, speak the word only. That's good enough for me who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Abraham came to the place where the word of God was sufficient. He didn't need anything else. If God said it, that was good enough for him. We see that exhibited further when the Lord spoke to him and told him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. God didn't tell him to kill his son. He said, offer him as a sacrifice. He's testing Abraham's willingness to obey his word. And the Bible says that Abraham followed through up to the point of raising the knife to thrust into his son's heart when the angel stopped him. And the Bible says of that, Paul writing to the Jews in the book of Hebrews, says that Abraham received his son raised from the dead if that was necessary. He had already counted that done. He had already settled that issue in his heart because God said that through Isaac shall the the nations of the earth be blessed. So the word of God was enough for him to even do something that seemed contrary to their culture, which would have been murder by offering Isaac as a sacrifice because he was willing to take God at his word alone. That's the kind of faith that Jesus was looking for. That's the kind of faith that he was looking for in Israel. And he should have found it, but he didn't. Now, there's a verse of scripture in in, uh, 
Luke chapter 18 and verse 42. It's the story of the unjust judge where the lady pesters him day after day after day, even though the unjust judge doesn't care about her. He doesn't care about her cause. He doesn't care about justice. It's not a type of God. But the unjust judge finally relents and gives the woman what she wants because she pesters her to the point of annoyance. And Jesus says, if the unjust judge is willing to do that for somebody he doesn't care about, how much more will your father do something to avenge his own people, his children? He'll avenge them speedily. But then the last phrase in verse 42 of Luke 18 says this, but when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I wonder what kind of faith he'll be looking for. You think it might be the kind of faith that he said of the centurion when he marveled because of his great faith? You think it's the kind of faith where somebody says, speak the word only? That's good enough for me? Well, he's given the church the same instruction to follow the faith of Abraham that the Jews had under the old covenant, doesn't he? That's the kind of faith he wants each one of us to have. That's the kind of faith he wants each one of us to have. Now, I want you to turn with me to uh, Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. I'm going to start reading in verse 22, but verse 26 is the one I want to get to and point out to you. It says, so Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. This is after God parts the Red Sea, or Moses parts the Red Sea, really, by the hand of God or at the instruction of God. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah because they were bitter. Some translations say poisonous. I don't think it's talking about just a bad taste. It's got to be something more important than that. So in my thinking, poisonous would be a, a fit or a good translation for this. So anyway, they couldn't drink the water. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. Which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made for them a statute and an ordinance and there he proved them. Now I can I ask you a question? What tree purifies water? What tree purifies poisonous water? We're not talking about a natural reaction here. We're talking about a tree that signifies something else, has to signify something else for it to bring healing to the waters or purification to the waters. The tree is the type of the cross of Jesus. The waters are a type of mankind. When Jesus came to the earth and was hanged on the cross as our sacrifice and as our substitute, he purified mankind from spiritual death and sin. But now notice verse 26. Here's what the Jews had. Here's what belonged to the Jews, the children of Israel. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and he proved them. Verse 26, and he said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes. I'm reading from the King James. I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Guys, I'm going to ask you if you, I haven't asked you before. Maybe I should have done this before the service. But do you have a Bible translation back there that has the Strong's Concordance of Numbers attached to it? 
Don't have that? Can't put that up on the screen? Okay. Well, then here's what I want you to do. Those of you that have iPads or something like that, maybe you've got a, a Bible program that can prove this out to you. But it's available for any and all of you to see. What I want you to see is very simply this. There are two phrases in verse 26 when he gives an instruction, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God and will do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes. The next three words are, I will put. I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. There is one personal pronoun, I, in the original text. Will put, or to put, as it's translated, and have brought, as it's translated, are primary verbs. There is no personal pronoun attached to those whatsoever. There is a personal pronoun attached to the last word, I, the personal pronoun, I. In other words, God's identifying himself as the healer, not the one that makes people sick. This would most probably be best translated in my thinking. If you will keep his statutes and his commandments, none of these diseases will come upon thee which have come upon the Egyptians. For I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now, we've said this before, and forgive me for repeating this, but I think it's important for us to recognize. I think it's important for us to, for this to sink in. A translation, whether it's King James or any other translation, is based on two things. First, the knowledge that the translators have of the language that they're translating from. Second, their understanding of the character and the nature of God. See, there's only one reason why personal pronouns would be attached to I have put or I will put and I have brought and that is if the translators think that God's in charge of everything pulling levers and pushing buttons and doing whatever he wills in the earth which doesn't bear up under what the Bible says is the way that the earth works the Bible says that man has authority on the earth God said let us make man in our own image and let him have dominion over the works of our hands well if God never changes when did that authority pass from man back to somebody else We've even been, I've been guilty in times past of saying that when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, that authority was transferred over to the devil. But that can't be right. Because if that were the case, then why in the world would God tell the Jews, the children of Israel in Deuteronomy, that I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. If the devil has authority on the earth, it wouldn't matter what you wanted to choose. He's going to do his thing. The only reason that God would provide a choice between life and death, blessing and cursing for the people, his covenant people in the Old Testament, is if they had the authority to make that choice for themselves. Otherwise, it wouldn't matter what they wanted. And remember what God said when the children of Israel refused to believe God about going into the promised land that cost them 40 years in the wilderness? Deuteronomy chapter 18, I'm sorry, chapter 14 about verse 28 he says tell he says to Moses tell the people i will do unto you as you have, according to what you have spoken in my ears well why would man's words have any bearing on what god does unless man has authority in the earth it would be the only explanation so god's not the one making people sick 
He's not the one that's saying that he'll keep sickness and disease off of them. He's not the one that says he brought sickness and disease upon the Egyptians. He's very simply saying, if you'll keep my commandments and walk in my statutes, then none of the diseases will come upon you which have come upon the Egyptians who are outside of God's covenant. For I, now here's God identifying himself. Here's God calling himself by name. For I am the Lord that healeth thee. I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now, if the children of Israel under the old covenant had a promise and a guarantee, literally a guarantee, for healing under certain conditions, why aren't they operating in that covenant provision by faith? What do you think was God's purpose in identifying himself in Exodus fifteen twenty six as the Lord that healeth thee? If not for the people to hear that, believe that, and walk in that. Yet by the time Jesus gets to the earth, starts his earthly ministry in Matthew chapter 8, up until that point in time at least, he hadn't found anybody with that kind of faith in all of Israel, in anybody that he's ministered to. But he finds it in the centurion. He finds it in the Gentile. He finds it for them. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 4. Jesus goes to his own hometown of Nazareth, the town that he was brought up in. And he announces his purpose. Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. This would be Isaiah 61 in our modern day translations. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he's saying these scriptures are talking about me. There's no question in anybody's mind that he's claiming to be the Messiah. It's part of the reason they rejected him. Because he said these scriptures that speak to the Messiah are fulfilled today because I'm here. And all bear witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? They're coming up with reasons in their thinking, in their minds, why he can't be the Messiah. Why he can't be telling them the truth. And he said unto them, you will surely say unto me this proverb. Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. Jesus says they've heard about what he's done in Capernaum. You remember that after the temptation in the wilderness, when Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and the devil came and tempted him, it says that after the temptation, the devil left him for a season and he returned in the power of the spirit unto Galilee. Well, Capernaum's in Galilee. So Jesus says, I know you've heard about me. I know you've heard what I've done in Capernaum. And I know what you're thinking. 
you're saying to yourself, well, if you're the Messiah, then prove it to us by doing the same kind of works that we heard about in Capernaum. But folks, I want you to understand something. God's not interested in pouring out the Holy Ghost to prove to his people who he is. That was true then and that's true now. God's not interested in using manifestations of the Spirit, gifts of healings and working of miracles, for example, so the church can entertain herself or even for the church to be healed because God expects his people to believe him. God expected Israel to have faith in him. God expected Israel to understand the integrity of the word and be willing to stand on what that word has promised. Well, if he expected that out of Israel, who didn't have as good a covenant as we have, what do you think he expects out of us? He goes on to explain. He said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three, three and a half years, when the great famine was throughout all the earth of the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save or except unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, that's in Gentile territory, not in Judea, not in the boundaries of Israel, a city of Sidon unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving name in the Syrian. Now, why would that be the case? He's stating a fact, but why was it a fact? Why was Elijah not sent to an Israelite, but instead was sent into Gentile territory? And why, of all the lepers that were in Israel in the time of Elisha, why was Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile, non-Jew, why was Naaman the Syrian the one that was healed by a manifestation of the Holy Ghost? Why did, why did God... Under the covenant, uh, under the uh, uh, information that's given to us in the Old Testament, why was it that Elisha had a manifestation of the Holy Ghost, most likely working of miracles in my thinking? Why was it that he had a working of miracles manifestation for the widow woman that was a Gentile instead of some Jewish lady? Why would God go outside the covenant boundaries to manifest the Holy Ghost to provide for Elijah during the famine and not send him to some Jewish widow? And why would God manifest the Holy Ghost in gifts of healings for Naaman the Syrian instead of one of the other lepers, one of the other of many lepers that were in Israel in that time? Because God expects more of it as people. God has not put gifts of healings and working of miracles or even special faith into the church for her to be healed by. He expects you and me to get our healing on our own, just simply by believing in the integrity of the word. Now, the Bible tells us that they rejected him in Nazareth. And all they that were in the synagogue when they heard these things were filled with wrath. They didn't want to be reminded. He just told them the truth. But they didn't want to be reminded that God reached out to a Gentile instead of a Jew. So they were filled with wrath and they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill whereon their city was built that they might cast him down headlong, kill him in other words. But he passing through the midst of them went his way. 
Matthew's account of this is in chapter 13. And it says in verse 58 that he could not do any mighty works or he did no mighty works in that place, talking about Nazareth, because of their unbelief. Mark 6, 5's account says it this way, and he could there do no mighty works save that he laid his hands upon a few sickly folks, a few folks with minor ailments, and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. Now let's keep reading in Luke chapter 4. What does Jesus do when he passes through the midst of them, escapes their hands when they wanted to kill him for telling them the truth? Notice in verse 31, it says, And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days, and they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. Now what did he do in Capernaum? His visit to Capernaum, not his first visit to Capernaum, but his return visit to Capernaum after he left Nazareth. What did he do in Capernaum that was different than what he tried to do in Nazareth? Nothing. What made the difference? The level of faith on the individual from the people in the city. In Nazareth, there was no faith or very little faith. He was only able to do a little bit of healing people that didn't have too much wrong with them. But he immediately goes back to Capernaum where they believe. And they were astonished at his doctrine for his word was with power. I want you to see that the same word carried power in Capernaum because they were willing to believe. Now he had to be satisfied with their faith. These are Jews. So there was a level of faith at least to the degree to where he could do a part of the work that God sent him to do. Maybe not great faith like we see exhibited by the centurion. Speak the word only and my servant will be healed. But at least they were willing to believe that God sent him and anointed him to do the work that he did here on the earth. And in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice. Saying let us alone what have we to do with thee Jesus of Nazareth. Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. And, all, and they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commanded the unclean spirits, and they came out. And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. What made the difference in Jesus' ministry in Capernaum? as opposed to or contrasted with his ministry in Nazareth. There's only one difference. Jesus was the same both places. The power of God was the same both places. The power that he was anointed with was the same both places. It wasn't that Jesus had a stronger anointing in Capernaum than he had in Nazareth. He says himself, I'm anointed to preach the gospel to the poor and deliverance to the captives, to preach recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That would produce all the signs and all the wonders and all the miracles that, we, that he had and that they had heard about in Capernaum or that he did anywhere else during his earthly ministry. There's one difference and only one difference, and that was in Capernaum the people were willing to believe. In Nazareth they were not. Now who had a greater covenant? The Jews in Capernaum or the Jews in Nazareth? Same covenant promise. God is the Lord that healeth thee in Nazareth. Just as much as he's the God that healeth thee 
in Capernaum. But he only got results in one of the two places in Capernaum. Not because of God's choice. Not because the will of God was to heal people in Capernaum and it wasn't the will of God to heal them in Nazareth. The difference is the faith of the people in Capernaum which enabled the power of God to work as opposed to the unbelief of the people in Nazareth which prevented the power of God from working. Now if Jesus had the spirit of God without measure which the Bible says he did we would certainly have to assume and understand that he had a greater measure of the Holy Ghost than any one human being will ever have on this earth. He had all the Holy Ghost that there was. But now the Bible says the work of the Holy Ghost, manifestations of the Spirit and such, are divided among the body of Christ. So if Jesus, who is the most greatly anointed person that's ever walked on the earth, was hindered by unbelief, doesn't it stand to reason that we're going to be hindered by unbelief too? How do you overcome unbelief? Well, the Bible says Jesus went about the cities and villages teaching. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Now turn with me over to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Let's start reading in verse 10. It says, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. He was teaching. Sometimes he went to a place and he preached. He proclaimed what God had sent him to do. That's what he did in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. But here he's in a different place teaching in the synagogues for the purpose of inspiring the people to believe, to have faith. So he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. That's a long time to be bound. And she was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. Now, I don't know what that is. I don't know if that was some form of arthritis or crippling disease of some type. But the Bible indicates to us that she couldn't stand up straight. And she's been that way for 18 years. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loose from thine infirmity. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. I want you to notice she glorified God when she got healed, not while she was sick. So many times people in the church world today will put on a real real religious air concerning the sick, and they'll say, well, you know, sometimes God uses sickness to teach us. Sometimes God brought this into our lives so that we would just glorify him in the midst of the adversity and the trouble. I don't find many sick people glorifying God unless they're believing for their healing. I see most of the people that are told that God has some purpose for them being sick or diseased with questions, not answers. They want to know why is this happening? Why is this occurring in my body? What did I do? What sin did I commit? But when you understand the devil is the oppressor and God's the healer, it cleans up a lot of wrong doctrine. So she glorified God after she was made straight and the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. Now I want you to realize who the ruler of the synagogue is. The ruler of the synagogue is the guy that should be preaching and teaching in the synagogues. 
teaching the people to inspire them to faith like Abraham had. The ruler of the synagogue should have been, should have recognized his job as getting the people to a place of maturity so that they would have confidence in God's word. See, what were the widows in Israel supposed to do during the time of famine? And what were the lepers in Israel supposed to do during the time of Elisha? They were supposed to claim the promises of the covenant that they had through their father Abraham. They were supposed to claim by faith, just like Abraham claimed by faith the promise God made unto him, so that they would be provided for in the midst of the famine and the lepers could be healed. See, the lepers in Israel, just like every other sick person in Israel, had a covenant promise that the Lord was the one that healeth thee. I am the Lord that healeth thee. They served the God that was the healer of the body. They had just as much right to make a claim on that promise because they were the children of Abraham as Abraham had for himself. God specifically said, and they knew it. The Jews knew it. This was part of their history. It's part of the old covenant law. The historical record that they had. They knew that the covenant blessings of Abraham, including healing, belonged to them because of their heritage. Because of their bloodline. They knew that. But you don't find any lepers crying out to God for healing. And I believe, again, that that's why Jesus is lamenting in Matthew chapter 8 that this is the kind of faith that he hadn't found in Israel. I believe it's why he says, and the Gentiles will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Why Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Because they understood and operated by the faith that says, speak the word only. So the ruler of the synagogue, the one that should have been teaching and inspiring these people to believe the word. The ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because of Jesus that healed on the Sabbath day. I want you to see what their interest was. The ruler of the synagogue's interest was in keeping the Sabbath day and not doing any work. Instead of looking for the work of God to be done anytime and all the time. So he's mad because Jesus healed on the wrong day. And he said unto the people, there are six days which men ought to work and then therefore come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Well, let me ask you a question. Why hadn't he healed this woman? This is not the first time she's been in his synagogue. Why hadn't he healed her? Why hasn't he pointed to her to the answer of the covenant blessing of healing? The Old Testament covenant blessing of healing. Why hadn't he pointed her in that direction? It would be disingenuous of him if he wasn't willing and able and equipped to bring her healing for her some other day of the week other than the Sabbath day if he's going to complain about Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. Notice Jesus' response. The Lord then answered him and said, You hypocrite. Jesus always dealt pretty roughly with the religious people. He was gentle and kind with those that needed help and were looking to God for their answer. But he recognizes this synagogue ruler as a 
unsafe guide for the people. Because he's not pointing them to the word. He's not pointing them to the covenant promise of healing. Or any of the other covenant promises of God. He's imposing rules and restrictions. That's his interest. The more rules, the better. Because the more you can make people feel guilty about what they've done wrong, the more dependent they are on the ministry, the priesthood, to make it right with God. Religion always tries to put people in bondage rather than set them free. Always. And they do it with an air of moral superiority. But it's still the work of the devil. So Jesus said, you hypocrite. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath day loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? Now those would be violations of the law of Moses, but they're making exceptions for themselves because, hey, we can't let our animals die. There goes our opportunity to make money if our animals die. We can't tend to the crops and till the ground and do the other things that need to be done. So we're sure that God will just look the other way when we break the law of Moses to take care of our animals on the Sabbath day. But Jesus is saying the reason that these guys were hypocrites was because they were willing to take care of and provide for their animals, but not the woman who needs healing. You hypocrite. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath day loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? Now notice what Jesus says in verse 16. And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, lo, these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? I want you to see what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that healing belongs to her. He's very simply saying, and allow me to use different words to make the point, but he's very simply saying, isn't it right for her to be healed from this thing because she's a daughter of Abraham? Doesn't it belong to her being a daughter of Abraham? Well, the Bible says if we be Christ, Galatians chapter 3, if you be Christ, this is verse 29, Galatians three twenty-nine. If you be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That or so that, this is Galatians three fourteen, so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. So here's my question. Does she have any greater right to healing than you or I? The Bible says Jesus went to the cross and was raised from the dead so that you as a Gentile believer could have rights and access to the same covenant provisions of healing that Israel had. In my thinking, it's even a greater provision because Jesus was made sick on our behalf. That wasn't true for the people of the old covenant. So Jesus says she has a right. That's what ought means. It means she's got a right to something. Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day? It belongs to her. Well, if it belonged to her, she could have taken advantage of it and, and gained access to it anyway, any point in time along the period of her life. Any point in time over these last 18 years, she could have reached out in faith, according to what the Old Testament said belonged to them, and she could have obtained it. Jesus says there's two reasons that are worthy to extend the healing power of God to her. Number one, she's a daughter of Abraham. It belongs to her. And number two, 
Because it's the devil that's bound her. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, I believe it is. It says, for this purpose was the Son of God manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus saw a work of the devil being done in her body. And his love and his compassion, his desire to reveal the will of God for mankind was so great that he couldn't help himself but to extend the healing power of God to her. If it belongs to her, it even more belongs to you. If Jesus shows us the will and the attitude of God the Father as well as his own attitude toward the bondage of the enemy and the work of the enemy in the people of God, then that would be the same attitude that it'd have toward someone today that's bound by the work of the enemy, wouldn't he? If not, then God is a respecter of persons and we've got some pages to tear out of the Bible because the Bible says he is no respecter of persons. It means what he wants for one, he wants for all. I love this story because Jesus identifies that it's a right. Healing is a right. Healing belongs to her. He's saying, shouldn't she be healed because she's a daughter of Abraham? Shouldn't she be freed from the bondage of the enemy after these 18 years? Isn't it right that this be done? So he laid hands on her and she was made straight and she glorified the God of Israel. Folks, I want to encourage you to meditate on the word of God that says by Jesus' stripes you were healed. Because it should be the simplest thing in the world for us to take advantage, to take possession of, to gain access to the things that Jesus has already paid for. It should be the easiest thing in the world for us. Jesus preached from Isaiah's, uh, well, from Isaiah 61. Jesus preached that he was sent to proclaim the good news to the poor. Well, what's the good news to the poor? You don't have to stay poor. Poverty has been paid for. He was sent to preach deliverance to the captives, to proclaim the captives have been set free. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the captives have been set free. He was sent to preach the recovering of sight to the blind because of the sacrifice of Jesus, in other words, the blind are restored to sight. Recovering of sight to the blind. He was sent to heal the brokenhearted. He's saying that sickness is a result of a breach in spirit. That breach in spirit occurred in the Garden of Eden when Adam disobeyed God and yielded to the devil's influence. There was a break. A break in the relationship that man had with God. Spiritual death began to rule and reign over him, and sickness came in upon the scene. Death passed upon all men. The consequences of spiritual death, which include sickness and disease, began to rule and reign in the man, the earth that God had created under man's authority. Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to restore man to a place of righteousness, which is what happens when you and I are born again. We're restored to a place of righteousness where all these things belong to us. It belongs to you even more than it did to her. So if Jesus could stand and look at her and say, isn't it right for her to be healed? 
then if he's no respecter of persons, we have to recognize that he says the same thing about you and me. Isn't it right for them to be healed? Jesus would be able to go even further in our case and say, I paid for sickness and disease on the cross. I bore their sicknesses. I carried their pains. And with my stripes, they were healed. Ought not we be healed since Jesus paid for it? Amen and amen and a thousand times amen. It belongs to us. It's a right. Don't let the devil rob you of what belongs to you. How do we take a hold of it, Pastor Mike? How do we gain access to it? Same way the centurion did. Speak the word only. Speak the word only. And I shall be healed. What are we to speak? Start declaring what Jesus has already done. Quit looking for God to do something and declare what God has already done through Jesus. Jesus took my infirmities. He bore my sicknesses. And with his stripes I was healed. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my peace, financial well-being is included in peace, was upon him. And with his stripes I am healed. Start declaring what is yours and gain access into the grace of God, the finished work of God through the words of your mouth. That's how you take hold of it. I made mention of this this morning, but it bears repetition at this point. The Old Testament tells us about Israel being brought into the promised land. God's promise to them was concerning the promised land. He said it this way. He said, every place the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours. Now, the whole promised land belonged to them. The entirety of the boundaries of the promised land belonged to Israel. It is part of the blessing of Abraham. That's a type. The promised land is a type of the new covenant that we have and the blessings that we enjoy under the new covenant. Some people seem to think that the promised land is a type of heaven. But there aren't any giants to fight in heaven. There's no resistance. There's no battle to win. But there is a battle down here because we enjoy the blessings of God in the presence of the enemy. Psalm 23 says he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The devil is here and he's a real devil. And he'll do everything he can to keep you from taking hold of the promises of God. He'll do everything he can to keep you from taking hold of what Jesus has already paid for. But God said that the type, the Old Testament type of the promised land, is like a type of the baptism of the Holy Ghost for us. It's like a type of healing for us. It's like a type of prosperity for us. It's like a type of the peace of God for us. And then the, the principle is every place the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Let me say it this way. God's telling his people, you can have whatever you're willing to take. But you'll only have what you determine to have. You'll only have what you choose to take hold of. It's not going to fall on you like ripe cherries off of a tree. It's not a matter of, well, if God wants this for me, it'll happen. You have to take it. You have to take possession of it. How do we take it? Well, you tread, every place of soul your foot shall tread shall be yours. That's fulfilled in us through the words of our mouth. That's how you take possession of something, is by declaring it. Because remember, in the, even in the Old Testament, God said, according as they've spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. You're the one that has authority. You're the one that decides what you're going to have. Jesus said it this way in Mark chapter 11, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. In other words, he's saying whoever's willing to take this mountain 
to remove this mountain from their path. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he says shall come to pass. He shall have. That's the strongest statement of declaration you can make. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Then say he'll have whatever he wants. Then say he'll have whatever he hopes for. It says he'll have whatever he says. Whatever he takes possession of through the words of his mouth. Remember, that's where the centurion showed Jesus how great his faith was. He said, I understand how authority works. It works through the spoken command. I tell my servant to do something, and he does it. I tell the soldiers under me to do something, and they do it. His understanding of authority was the understanding of words expressing that authority. So speak the word only. The same thing's true for us. I believe this is the faith that Jesus is looking for when he comes back. An army of believers who simply say, I'll stand on the word. God's word's already declared what's mine. I'll take it according to his word. I'll take it according to his promise. I'll take it according to my faith. Healing belongs to you even more so than it belonged to this woman that was bowed over for 18 years. If she ought to be healed because she's the daughter of Abraham, even more so should you be healed because you're an heir of Abraham's blessing and Jesus died as your substitute. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that healing belongs to us. We thank you for all the work that Jesus performed on our behalf as our substitute. We thank you that he shed blood for our sins to be remitted, wiped away and removed once and for all. We thank you that he shed his blood for sickness and disease to be carried away from us and be placed upon him. We thank you, therefore, Father, that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We take hold of the healing provision of the new covenant by believing in our heart and saying with our mouth, Jesus bore my sins. He bore my sicknesses. And with his stripes I am healed. Hallelujah. Father, it's so good to be healed. Thank you, Lord, that the word is true. Thank you, Father, that healing is ours. Thank you, Lord. We take, it, take a hold of it by faith. We'll not change our confession. We'll not doubt in our heart. So we give you thanks and glory in advance, Father that we have the healing that we've declared and claimed with our mouths. We shall have what we say. We love you, Father. We thank you for the great sacrifice that Jesus made. We thank you for your great plan of redemption. We thank you that you've blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places and that your mercy endures toward us forever. Blessed be the holy name of Jesus. Blessed be the holy name of Jesus. Blessed be the holy name of Jesus. The price has been paid. We're free from the debt of sin and sickness. For Jesus died for us. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Healing's the easiest thing in the world to receive. It's already been paid for. It's already been paid for. It's just as easy to get healed as it is to get saved. It's just as easy to get healed as it is to be forgiven from sin. Easiest thing in the world because Jesus has already paid the price. Say it with me. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Amen. I don't know if I've helped you any, but I've preached me happy. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here. Have a great week and you're dismissed.